If you will turn in your Bibles, we're in Genesis. We are today, we will get roughly 60% of the way through this book. We're in Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. We're going to do a little review of chapter 29. And then we're also going to take a look at a New Testament passage just quickly here. All right. Let's get into this. So last time I preached out of Genesis, we covered the entirety of chapter 29. I don't think we're going to probably make it all the way through 30. I think we'll probably basically do the first half of chapter 30. There's kind of a switch there, and there's a lot of stuff that I want to get into, and I don't want to get halfway into it and then be running out of time, and I also don't want to keep you here till 1 o'clock. So we're going to see some crazy stuff in this chapter, though. I think we're going to see just how dysfunctional this family is. We're going to see the full display of the depravity of mankind in the setting of a family. Okay, This chapter is just... It's an incredibly dysfunctional mess. That's what it is. And yet the hope in that is that we see God still working through that, through these broken people who are ravaged by sin, who are manipulative, who are scheming, and yet in the midst of that you see God's plan of redemption still working out. And that's, that's the hope. That's the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is not just that Jesus is perfect and beautiful and pure and necessary, but the hope of the gospel also is that Jesus works in broken people. Because you're broken, friend, whether you realize it or not, whether you'll admit it or not, and so am I, because of sin that dwells within me. So we're going to see the depravity of mankind on full display. We're going to see a lot of strife and havoc and what sin can wreak in a family. The other thing, though, that I want you to notice and appreciate is that the Bible paints a very realistic picture of the heroes of the faith. We get to see the heroes of the faith, if you will, warts and all. It paints a very realistic picture. It's one of the beautiful things about the scriptures. The scriptures are not like uh, the Celtic you know, mythologies. They're not like the English mythologies. They're not like the... The American folklore tall tales where you have these heroes that are painted as these great and mighty men and women who never do anything wrong. Or they do something wrong, but then they pay for it and then they become these almost perfect people and everyone lives happily ever after. That's a Disney kind of fairy tale. It's not real life. No, real life is that every person in this book is broken except for one. There's only one that's worthy of emulation. There's only one that's worthy of worship. And it's not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's Jesus Christ. So, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the heroes of our faith didn't accomplish great things. Obviously, they did. But they didn't do those great and mighty things because they themselves were so great and mighty innately. They did great and mighty things because Christ was working through them and in them. In fact, you might say it this way. God was accomplishing his work through them in spite of them. That's often how I feel. God, when God accomplishes things through me, it is not because of me. It is in spite of me. Does that make sense? He still accomplishes things through me and you because he's that kind of God. And Jacob, by the way, is no exception to this rule, and we're going to see that in chapter 30. We'll see just how superstitious as well Jacob and his family are. We'll see that they're doing all kinds of things to, in, in their mind that's increasing their chances of X, Y, or Z, whether that's you know, getting pregnant or whether that's having you know, uh, sheep, and it's nothing. It's not doing anything. But the Lord is working. You'll, we will see the superstition and that God is still at work. Even in spite of all of that. And we're also going to see the character of Jacob. Remember I told you this. I've, I'm fond of saying this. We often don't have a problem with our own sin. Until it hurts us. The sin that we struggle with. We tem- tend to think of as that's not a big deal. Until that same sin bites us. And oftentimes it's through someone else. Well, it's not a big deal to be an arrogant know-it-all. Okay. 
And tell the guy that you work with or your boss or your friend is an arrogant know-it-all. Right? And then you're like, that's the most annoying thing. You see, whatever it is that we tend to struggle with, two things. Number one, the sin that you struggle with, the reason that you struggle with that sin, the sins that I struggle with, the reason I struggle with those sins, is because in some sense, somewhere, you still love it. And that's something of the horror of the nature of the depravity of man. In your flesh, there is sin that you still love. You may not like the consequences of the sin. Second thing, one of the best and fastest and easiest ways for God to make you hate that sin, and by the way, God will cultivate a hatred for that sin in you. There's a reason for that. You will never get free of any sin that you don't hate. As long as you still love it, you'll be trapped in it. And one of the easiest ways to cultivate in you a hatred for that sin is for you to see it in others. Or to, or to be bitten by it. For you to be hurt by that sin. It's incredible how you can, you can really think it's just it's like a pet snake that you play with. Uh, I, I don't know what I'm doing. When I was in college, I, I was playing college football. I had a friend of mine who was, he was a different fella. He kind of lived life on the edge. And you've got to remember, at the college level, that's kind of the personality the game seems to attract. And, uh, and so my buddies have been telling me, hey, have you seen uh, Eric's snake? Oh, that's cool. I thought, which were, you cannot have snakes in the dorms, okay? Obviously. But, but you know me, I was like, snakes? Okay, I'll, I'll take a look. Thinking he's had like a ball python or a corn snake. No, he had a six and a half foot rattlesnake that he was keeping in the dorms. At East Central University. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, that thing's going to get you at some point. Oh, no, I, I, know, I, know how, I don't know how to do it. I keep it well fed. Well, your pet sin is kind of like that. It's not if it's going to bite you. It's simply when and how bad. And God is working through you. That's part of the process of sanctification. I really mean that. Part of the process of sanctification is that God is working in you to cultivate a hatred for that sin. And the reason, part of the reason that he's cultivating that hatred in you is because that sin, if you will allow it, will eat you up. It'll destroy you. Right? You remember what, what, uh, what the Lord said to um, Cain, right? Sin's crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It wants to eat you alive. But you should rule over it. Well, that's what's going on in this chapter. We're going to see Jacob, who has been the supplanter. He's been the deceiver. He's been the user of others. And we're going to see him get a good, long sip of his own medicine. And we're going to see it change him. He is going to come back. Remember, he, he left and went to Paden Aram. When he comes back, he's going to be a different man. I'm not saying he's going to be a perfect man. He's not. But he is going to be a different man. He's going to be a man that has a lot more integrity. And one of the reasons that he does is because he's been bitten by this thing that he used to do so much. And he can now see clearly how detrimental it is. May God do the same with us. Jacob, the user and the manipulator of others, is going to feel the sting of it himself. He's going to be objectified and used a lot. So before we get on with all, into all that, let's pray. And we'll do a little bit of review of 29 and we'll get into 30. All right. Lord, we pray you would show us great things from your word today. Lord, I ask, use me as a mouthpiece to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word today. Let my preaching and my teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today to the hearts of your people. For the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you and to you alone. For you alone, Lord, are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. So let's begin with a quick rundown of what we covered in 29. <clears throat> Remember I told you there's a common theme in Jacob's life, and it's what I like to call the Frankenstein complex. Remember in Mary Shelley's classic tale, Frankenstein was the scientist that was terrorized by a monster of his own making. And that's kind of what we see in Jacob's life. It's something of a recurring theme we see in his life. He's terrorized by a monster of his own making. It's a monster that his sin has made. And it's a recurring theme that's very common in the life of all believers. 
It is very common that some of the greatest trials we go through were set up because of our own sin. It's a monster made from our own sin. It's a monster of our own making. Made from our own neglect, our own disobedience, our own selfishness. And we'll see that play out in the life of Jacob as well. Remember, Jacob is fleeing from the murderous threats of his brother. He had been tricking his brother, which was crazy. He's trying to trick his brother. In his mind, I've got to trick him into the blessing, the blessing that God's already promised him. Like, there's no need for you to be tricky about this. God's already promised it to you. Just sit back and relax, pal. But in his mind, he's got to steal it. And so he's very conniving in the way that he deals with his brother. His brother gets very angry about it. His brother says, when dad dies, then I'm killing him. And so he has to flee. He flees with nothing more than the clothes on his back and his walking staff. He was very destitute. And so he flees to his uncle Laban, who's roughly 450 miles away. That's a long walk, in case you're wondering. And he walked. He didn't have a mule to ride. He didn't have a camel. He got to walk that. That's basically me walking to uh, where I grew up in western Kansas. be a long walk, man. He walks it, flees to Paden Aram for his very life. And he finds his uncle Laban, who's the brother of his beloved mother. Remember, Jacob's the mama's boy, right? And since this is her brother, surely Jacob can trust him, right? It's the brother of this mother that he loves. And it turns out he can't. Since Jacob has nowhere to go and no means to go there by anyway, he stays with his uncle Laban. While he's staying there, he seems to have been pulling his weight around the farm. So, you know, hats off to him. He's obviously helping Laban's family with the day-to-day operations of the place. Enough so, Laban finally asks him, hey, what should I pay you? Let's pick it up. Chapter 29, verse 15. Here's what it says. Laban said to Jacob, just because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me then, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. And I told you last time, that's a euphemism to say she wasn't all that pretty. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to some other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So finally, Jacob's seven years of servitude are up. He approaches Laban about the wedding arrangement. Laban says, you bet, let's do it, throws a big feast. The wedding seems to go down without a hitch. There's plenty of feasting, which means they would have been drinking lots of wine as well. And I'm sure that night, as it's dark, and Jacob's under the influence of the wine, not on the top of his game as far as his senses go, what does Laban do? He sneaks Leah into the tent. What happens? Well, at any rate, he spends the night with Leah, thinking it was Rachel. And then when he wakes up in the morning, he's hit with the truth, and he's not too happy about it. Justifiably angry about the trickery, he immediately confronts Laban about it. Laban pawns off his deceptive trickery on tradition of the country. Well, that's, that's just not the culture that we, we're from. <clears throat> Around here, we don't do things like that. Oh, you should have mentioned that seven years ago, pal. You already made a deal. But Jacob goes along with it. Jacob is long-suffering. He is a patient man. You can, get, you can say a lot of things against him, but he is a patient man. He just says, fine. So Laban, after tricking Jacob and probably deserving a beating, then gets him to sign up for another seven years. Man, what a great way to go about it. He is, I told you this last time, I said if, if Jacob has a, has a bachelor's degree in being manipulative and cunning and deceptive, Laban's got the master's, baby. Laban knows this game. He is very adept and adroit at it. So, he bargains with Jacob for another seven years of servitude for Rachel's hand in marriage. So now he's going to marry both of the daughters. Remember, Laban tells him, listen, man, just let it ride. Just, just you know, do this honeymoon week with Leah. Then at the end of it, then we'll, we'll get you married to Rachel as well. And then you'll serve me for another seven years. Now think about that. 
That means that Jacob served seven years for a, a wife he never wanted. I mean, he got played. You know what he's going to find out? He's going to get played by his own wives, too. This guy that is so manipulative and deceitful and cunning and crafty is going to find out he's not nearly as crafty as he once thought. And we are going to see a dramatic turn in his character because of that. And it's an awesome thing to see. So Jacob completes his honeymoon week with Leah, immediately marries Rachel as well. Now he's married to both sisters, and we're going to set up, we're going to see an in-house rivalry full of tension and strife. If you would like to know one of the reasons that polygamy is such a poor idea, it's that right there. There is no such thing as of polygamy without tension and strife. It does not work. If you'd, if you'd like to see it in action, I guess there's, there was the one show about it, the Mormon, what, Sister Wives. Yeah. Because who doesn't, you know, grow up just dreaming of marrying the same person as their siblings? Like, that's a really great way to have incredible tension. It just destroy family. It will. God set up marriage from the beginning to be one man, one woman for life. And there's a host of reasons for that. Not the least of which is the kind of tension and rivalry and strife and undercutting and underhanded behavior that comes with anything else. So we end up finding out at the end of the chapter that the Lord looked down on Leah, though, and he saw that Leah was unloved. And her dad kind of does her dirty. Her husband didn't want her to start with. And she is unloved. And God looks down and says, I'll give you kids. And so with each son, Leah is desperately hoping that Jacob will finally start to love her. She's hoping to win the affection of her husband with the kids. And you can see that in the fact of the names that she chooses for the boys, right? The first three boys that she has are Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Reuben means, behold, a son. I mean, that was a great thing. To have kids in that day and age, and it should be in our day and age, was seen as an incredible blessing. It is an incredible blessing. Children are an incredible blessing. But especially so if they were sons. Because they were going to really help you. They were going to be big and strong and help you on the farm. So Reuben, here's Reuben. Behold, I've given you a son. I've given you, Jacob, what you've wanted. A son. Her second boy, Simeon, which means heard. And it's a reference to God had heard her pleas. Ah, now my, my husband will love me for sure. I've given him two boys. And yet it doesn't happen. And with the third boy, she names him Levi. Why? Because she says, well, now finally my husband will be attached to me. In fact, that's what Levi means. It means attached. And yet, that's not what happens. It never comes to be. In fact, we don't see any evidence that Jacob's heart really changed ever much toward her. And that's, a, that's heartbreaking to me when I read that. And yet something changes in her. Something changes in Leah. Leah has another boy, the fourth boy, and her heart's posture has changed. Instead of focusing on her husband's love and admiration and desire, she basically says, that doesn't matter. What does she say? This time I will praise the Lord. That's the right heart's posture. And she has a son named Judah. Which means praise. And of course, that's the son that we see the Messiah eventually coming through. That's the lineage that will produce our Savior. The one that's worthy of praise will come through the son that means praise. Notice, by the way, that that son came through the wife that was unloved. God did not abandon Leah. She may have felt abandoned by everyone else, but she was not abandoned by him. Thank God. And that brings us up to chapter 30. So let's turn there and let's begin our exegetical journey through the chapter, starting at verse 1. Chapter 30, verse 1 says this. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. What a drama queen. It's kind of ironic, though, because that is actually what will kill her. 
Give me children or what's my life worth without any kids? Give me children or else I'm going to die. No, you're not going to die. You just don't like the situation that you're in. It hurts. It does hurt. And I don't want to minimize that. It, it, it hurts today. You know, I have, I have friends who have struggled with wanting to have kids and couldn't. Um, I've, got, I've got a friend that I went to school with that he and his wife tried for years to have kids, couldn't have kids, did all kinds of treatments, uh, shots, hormone shots, the whole nine yards, injections. I couldn't have kids. So they said, we'll just adopt and literally like a month after getting on the adoption list, she gets pregnant with twins. And like six months after the twins were born, she's pregnant again. They have five kids now. And they said, here we were trying all these years, nothing happened. And then God just decided, it's time. And, uh, and by the way, they, they love the Lord. They're in a, they're in a fantastic, it's, it's awesome to see. But I, I want to say all that to say, I'm not trying to trivialize that. that it's a, it is a big deal. But at the same time, it's not a deal, especially at this day and age. Like, she's not going to go down to the doctor and get the shots and, you know, do an IVF treatment. Right? Instead, she's just full of envy. Look at what James has to say about that. James 4 says this, 4, 1 through 4. Where do wars and fights, the word for wars could also mean battle or contentions, strivings. Where do strivings Contentions or fights come from among you, James chapter 4, verse 1. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war within your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and battle, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Well, that's one that you hear. and That's like the, the verse that is preached out of context in every word of faith church. Very often, and I know because I was a pastor in a Word of Faith church. And nobody reads the next verse. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your own pleasures. Hmm. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity of, uh, with God? Whoever therefore wants to make themselves a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this envy, this rivalry is, is going to set up incredible strife in this home. Incredible strife that goes on. These two sisters, we don't see anything before this where they're at each other's. We, we see no evidence before this that they're ever bellicose toward each other, that they're ever, they seem to have gotten along just fine. But now that they're married to the same man, now it's a battle. It's a battle for his affection. And Leah knows Rachel's got the upper hand. She's pretty. She's got something that I've never had. She's pretty. But you know what? I'm fertile. That's literally what's going on. And it is so ironic that she will literally die from childbirth later. Remember, there are, there, of all of Jacob's sons, two of them would end up coming through Rachel. Remember Joseph? Coat of many colors. And then Joseph had a little brother. What was his name? Benjamin. Exactly right. Originally Ben-Oni, which was what his mother called him, which means son of my trouble. And Jacob, who knows something about names. Remember Jacob, whose name means supplanter or catcher of the heel, whom God renamed Israel. Jacob renames his son, which we're going to talk about later. I'm getting ahead of myself. But Jacob renames his son Benjamin, which instead of meaning son of my trouble, means son of my right hand. Give me children or else I die. And it's actually what she will die from. Why? Because she's envious. She doesn't want children because she wants a family. She doesn't want children because they're a blessing from the Lord. She wants children because she wants to show up her sister. Can I tell you something? There are things that God says are good and you can make them idols. They are not idols. You have made them that way. As Calvin said, and he was right when he said it, the heart of man is, as it were, a perpetual factory of idols. We can take even great things, good things, blessings of God, and we can idolize them. And that's what she's done. 
Verse 2, and Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? You know, like any good godly husband, he responds with gentleness and understanding, doesn't he? I'm ashamed to admit how many times my responses to my wife and children resembled Jacob's here more than Jesus. He's angry. I'm not God. What do you want me to do about this? Because she said to him, you give me children or else I die. What's the problem? She sees him as her source. It's not her source. He's a means by which God channels things for her. I am not the ultimate source of protection and provision for my household. I'm not. Now, I am charged with doing those things for my household, without a doubt. In fact, the scripture says, if you don't, you're worse than an unbeliever. Yes, providing for my household is a big deal. It's something that God has charged me to do. But ultimately, I'm simply a pawn in his hand. I'm a piece. I'm a means by which he he does cover my family. Ultimately, it's God that's doing that through me. Does that make sense? I'm not able to provide and protect my household because I am innately so talented or so wise or so whatever. I'm able to because the Lord is good. and He's good to me and he's good to my home. And instead of seeing the Lord as the source of children, instead of seeing the Lord as the one that's sovereign over the situation, instead, Rachel is myopically focused on this guy. It's you. You give me children. To which he says, I'm not God. I can't do that. I don't have that power. I'm doing my part. And I'm not going to go into any more detail about what that is. I'm doing my part. You're not getting pregnant. Now, here's what's crazy to me. Jacob's mom was the same way. And what happened with him? What happened with her? What did her husband do when she was barren? Well, the scripture says he went and pleaded to the Lord on her behalf. And God heard his plea and answered it. And that's how we get Jacob and Esau. By the way, I don't know if you've thought about this, but the patriarchs were incredibly good at choosing low fertile women. I don't know how they did that, but they did. All of them had, and I think it was probably a spiritual thing, really, honestly. The Lord is showing his power to them. But all of them had struggled with this. And yet Jacob here kind of misses the mark. Because instead of saying, you know what, this is something we should be pleading with the Lord for, he just gets mad. It kind of stomps off. Right? Not that I'm saying I don't understand that. But that should have been where they went to. Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he says, Am I in the place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Well, here's my maid, Bilhah. Go into her, and she'll bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Man, this is a familiar sight, isn't it? It should have been what he was... He should have been... This is the one place where he should have been copying the example of his dad, and he didn't. Right? Genesis twenty-five twenty-one. How did Isaac respond when Jacob's mom was childless? Pleaded for the, with the Lord for his wife because she was bearing, and the Lord granted his plea. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And instead, he just goes, sure, it sounds good. She says, here, take my handmaid. I hope this doesn't come out. Overly graphic, but the flesh of man is not going to object too much for having more ladies in his bed. Oh, that's where, well, sure, yeah. It's adoption, though. This was like an early way of adoption, not a good way per se, but it was an early way. Hey, my servant will have this child. I'll raise him up. It'll be basically my adopted son. But we've already seen this plan. And Jacob should have known that. Hey, look, uh, uh, my grandpa fooled around with this. It's, it's not a good idea. Besides, God has already told me that we're going to have kids. But he doesn't. And I, I, frankly, I, I don't know. Maybe he's just tired of fighting. I'm tired of the strife. Whatever. If that will appease you, fine. Ladies, you can do that to your husband. 
You can nag, 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 nag until he goes, fine, have it your way. And it will not turn out well. Should have known the model by this part. By the way, this is also one of the reasons I tell people that the wives of the patriarchs, I'm certain, were Baptists. No doubt about it. They act just like the typical Baptist would. We've got a problem. Uh, we're in a pinch. Let's just go to work. Get our planning committee. We're going to have an all-night planning meeting, emergency session, probably formed a committee and adopted Robert's Rules of Order. Had figured out a plan by the next day, right? They've done everything except the most important part, which is, I don't know, maybe we should pray about this. What do you think? Oh, don't give me the prayer meeting. Let's just get to work. Well, there is a proper order. I'm not saying we shouldn't work. We should do what we should work hard. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But we should also work hard in the right direction. You realize you can do God's, God's work in the wrong way. And you can cause a tremendous amount of trouble for yourself because of it. You sure can. Korah would be a good example. Remember Korah? Hey, we're all priests. We can all burn incense. He's trying to do God's work. This is what the priest did. And what was God's response? Swallowing him up straight to hell. He's, he's offered strange fire on my altar, which I have not commanded, God said. We can do God's, God's work in a way that is not the way that God has commanded. And we can cause a lot of trouble. And that's basically what's going on here. We haven't consulted the Lord. We're not going to plead with Him as we should be doing. Instead, we're just going to go ahead and do the work of the Lord in the way that we like. This seems good to our own fleshly minds. This is how the culture does it. Why shouldn't we do it the same way? Because you're not of them. You're of God. You're not like them. Their solutions are not always your solutions. Why? Because you have a God in your corner who, who lives and who intercedes on your behalf and who has said certain things. And sometimes our job is just to literally trust that and move forward that way. No, I'm just going to trust the Lord. It'll happen when it's his time. We often want to do the Lord's work in our own way, in our own strength, and the vast majority of the time, when we do that, it ends up causing chaos and strife, and it's exactly what happens here. Verse 4, so she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife, and Jacob went into her. And look at that, just like with Abraham, Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he's heard my voice and given me a son, and therefore she called his name Dan. Dan comes from a Hebrew word that means to judge. Daniel means God is my judge. Or the female version of that, Danielle, same thing. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. Why did you need to wrestle with your sister? Why was there ever a need? For what reason were you in competition with her? Indeed, I have prevailed, have you? So she called his name Naphtali, which means to wrestle. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. So this is now wife number four. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son as well. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. Now, listen, the word Gad can mean either a troop or it can also mean good fortune. And so you'll, you'll actually see different translations will translate this differently. The New King James, the King James will say a troop comes. I think the ESV actually says uh, good fortune comes. Either way, that's what the word means. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, I'm happy for the daughters will call me blessed. And so she called his name Asher. Asher means happy. Now here's some weird stuff. Here's, here's our superstitious part you're going to love. Oh, the mandrakes. Chapter, uh, chapter 30, verse 14. Now Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field. I really wish I knew how old he was at this point. He found mandrakes in the field and he brought them in to his mother Leah. 
And Rachel must have heard about it somehow because the very next sentence says, Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Oh, man. This is going to start a battle. Why? What is it about a mandrake that's going to start a war? So glad you asked. Here, here is something that bits a, warrant, a bit of warranted explanation, which is the whole reason that I made a PowerPoint was so I could show you, you guys some of this stuff. <coughs> Anybody here, by the way, ever seen a mandrake or planted a mandrake? You could plant it, I guess, in a flower bed. You ever seen, even better, a mandrake root? Yeah? If you have, you'll notice it's... Well, I'll show you one here in just a second. Mandrakes are not native to America. They are native to the Middle East. They are native to where they were at. They're a vegetable whose leaves are very green and kind of crinkly. There you go. There's some good pictures. You can see the, the leaves are really dark green and crinkly and has a, a gorgeous purple, kind of bluish flower. And it'll end up having fruits that are small, yellow, almost like a yellow tomato, like a tomatillo or something like that. But they call them love apples. Because the thinking was, this plant, this plant's an aphrodisiac plant. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's the superstition of the day, which, by the way, this still exists in places. I have heard this numerous times in my own classroom from students. So this kind of thinking did not die with the Middle Ages. It just has a very long history, okay? So the thinking of the time was this. The thinking of the time was that God has made some different foods with different shapes. And some of those foods have shapes that resemble parts of the human body. And so the way that we can find what foods will heal or cure or enhance part of your body is if you find a plant shaped like that body part. Okay? Let me give you an example. A couple of them. Walnuts, were, that's supposed to be brain food. Walnuts would help you with any kind of memory problem, any kind of brain problem. That's, that's brain food there. Why? Because it looks like a brain. You know what another one that was brain food was? Anybody ever hunt for morels? Morel mushrooms? All right? Kind of resembles a brain. Oh, it's, it must be true. Well, what do mandrakes look like? Well, the plant itself, not anything in particular, but the root, the root sometimes can bear a striking resemblance to the human form. Uh, you, you can see with not a whole lot of imagination needed, kind of looks like a little, a little baby human. And so the thinking of the day was, well, you take some mandrake root and you crush it up and you make this tea out of it, basically. You make an elixir and that's going to actually help with it enhances fertility. So why would Rachel want this root? She still hasn't had any kids. She is just certain if I can get my hands on some mandrake, that'll do it. Would you like me to give you an update? I mean, we know a lot about this plant now because it's been very well studied. A few things you should know about mandrake. True story. It's a hallucinogen. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to make you see things and feel things that are not necessarily there. And if you have too much of it, it'll kill you. So... Doesn't seem to be an aphrodisiac, doesn't do anything for fertility that we can discern, at least as of yet. But a lot of people believed it did. And Rachel was obviously one of them, and so was Leah. And Leah has this mandrake, and remember, at least at this point, Leah has stopped bearing as well. And so Leah's thinking, hey, finders keepers, pal. Man. Oh, the superstition of the day. Good thing we're not superstitious at all. We're, we're as every bit as superstitious a culture as they were. We just like to laugh at them and point fingers, but we are as well. We're every bit as superstitious as they were. There you go. There's your mandrakes, your love apples, right? It didn't take too much imagination for the people of that day to think a mandrake root looked like a little human, and therefore to deduce, obviously a little bit of mandrake will help open the womb. And that was the thinking of the day. And by the way, the thinking of that day was all the way through. I had this up here. I put it in the wrong place. All the way through the Middle Ages. We have Middle Age texts that tell us that was, that was the real reason you should go find these things. They could help you have kids. That's why they look like little people. 
Must be good for enhancing fertility. Verse 15. So she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Now think about the audacity it takes to say that. My husband. Because she was the first one married to him. Yet you were never part of the deal to start with. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Leah is not a happy camper. And Rachel said, therefore, okay, okay, here's what we'll do. Here's what we'll do. We'll make a deal. Jacob's going to lie with you tonight. And in exchange, I get some of the mandrakes. I've hesitated to use this word, but I'm going to use it. She's pimping out her husband. Do you realize that? Like how dysfunctional a family are you if you're literally pimping out your spouse? Which also tells me something else. Jacob was probably not really having marital relations with Leah anymore. And she's going to cut a deal. My guess is it was probably to keep Rachel happy. Because Leah's bearing children, right? If you're spending too much time with her, there's going to be more kids coming out of her. And we're in a war here. She's literally pimping out her husband. So when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You have to come in to me tonight. My night with you, pal. I've wheeled and dealed for it. How would you like that? If these roles were reversed, if this was a lady, there would be women storming out of this building. You have to come in to me tonight, for I've surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. I've paid for you, pal. He's literally being pimped out. And so he did, and he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Didn't work out real well for Rachel, did it? Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. You know what Issachar means? The, the, the boy that she had when she hired Jacob, she literally named to be hired or a hireling. That's what Issachar means. Can you see that this family is a bit dysfunctional? And yet the Lord is still working through them? That gives me great hope. You know why? My family's a bit dysfunctional. And yet the Lord can still work in it. Then Leah conceived and bore again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. And so she called his name Zebulun. Zebulun means habitation. She thinks this guy will finally be the one. She's back to her old way of thinking. This guy will finally be the one that makes him finally love me enough to live with me. My guess is they're living in separate tents. And she's saying, I'm going to get him over here in my tent. doesn't work. Here's the next part that I think is just heartbreaking. Verse 21, afterwards she bore a daughter and she called her daughter Dinah. You know what Dinah means? It means the judgment of God. That's how highly girls were thought of. Oh, if only God would have given me a son. Instead, gave me judgment. I've got a daughter. That's literally the thinking here. Do you know they would get wine and festivities and such ready? When the woman had a child, if it was a baby boy... There was, it was a huge feast, doling out the, the presents and why. I mean, it's like Christmas because, hey, we had a boy. It's an heir. Do you know if they had a daughter, they would cancel those festivities? I just found that out this week. That to me is incredible. And it should say something about the culture. Like sometimes we read the culture and we go, that's what culture should look like because it's the culture that they lived in. That is not always true. No, your daughters are precious gifts too. I have two of each. I have two daughters. I have two sons. I'm happy as can be to have two sons. I love to wrestle with them. Okay? They're going to be my bodyguards when they're 16, right? Because by then I'll be old. <laughs> we have children later in life, okay? But I'm incredibly grateful for my little daughters. My, my oldest is, I'll brag on her, poor girl. She's, my oldest, she gets me. 
She just knows, she knows when I'm upset. She knows when sometimes I'm just ticking, you know, it's just, it's underneath there. I'm not saying anything, but something's bothering me. She knows. And she saves the household. Because she'll come over there when I don't want to be bothered. I don't want anybody there. Don't just, just go on. She won't go on. She'll crawl up in my lap. She'll hang her arms around me. She'll kiss me on the cheek. I'm just like, I, I really mean this. There are m- many nights when I'll say, God, I do not deserve to be loved by my kids or my wife the way they do. You know, children are a blessing. And they're a blessing whether they're boys or girls. They're a blessing whether they're incredibly handsome or whether they're a little bit plain. They're blessings whether they're Rachel's or Leah's. They're blessings because they're gifts of God. That's what the Bible says. They are gifts of God. How dare we despise those gifts or favor one over the other? As if somehow one was made a little bit more in the image of God than the other. They're not. Our children are gifts. They're blessings of the Lord. And they are, by the way, the hope of this culture. They're the next generation of torchbearers of the faith. Should we, should we idolize them? No. But we should certainly cherish them. And there's nothing wrong with that. All of them, no matter what. Let me end by saying this. I'm going to read these last couple verses, but let me, let me do that first. Afterwards, she bore, this is 21, after she bore a daughter, she called her name Dinah, which means judgment. 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. It wasn't the mandrakes that opened the womb. It wasn't the potions. It wasn't the superstitions. It was God. And she conceived and she bore a son and she said, God has taken away my reproach. And so she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. That's prophetic. And by the way, she's right. He would. He would add to her another son named Benjamin. And that's actually when she would die. The Lord gave her Joseph. Now, let me close by saying this. Here are some of the points I think we should take away. I'd like to go through the rest, but there's just too much to get to. there's some points to be taken away. And one of them was the ones I already hit on. Our children are blessings no matter what. And they should be cherished. And we should also see them as an issue of stewardship. You don't have your children with you forever. And that's something that's been clearer and clearer to me. It's really tough on me. My oldest is eight. And I know compared to a lot of you, that's pretty young. You've got teenagers in your house or you've got grown children, but... I think the other day, I'm thinking the other day, you know, the kids are asleep. I'm thinking she's eight, and it was like that fast that she went from being born to eight years old. And I'll snap my fingers again, and she'll be 16, and I'll snap my fingers again, and she'll be gone. She'll be out of my house. And have I been a good enough steward in the things that I've taught her, in the things that I've tried to train her in? What's my stewardship look like for my children? Does everything else get time instead of them? Because I'll tell you what, I can be guilty of that. I can get myself involved in so many other things that I don't have enough time. I don't make enough time. That they can catch the back burner of the time. And it's not right. They're my first priority and they should have my time. They should have my time and my attention. More than my own worldly pursuits... The second thing that I think should come out of this is, is the hope. Like I said, this, this family is dysfunctional. It's a mess. And yet the Lord is still working in it. He's still working through it. Maybe your, your family is a dysfunctional mess too. But you know what? The Lord can work in that too. He is a sovereign God. His hand is not shortened that he cannot save. There is no family so dysfunctional that he cannot break into it. There's no family so dysfunctional that he cannot save them. There's no heart so hard that he cannot change it. And we've got to remember that. It's easy for us to see, especially our loved ones that are close to us, if they don't know the Lord, it's very easy for us to get frustrated. I know it is for me. 
It's easy for me to get frustrated. And I go through t- periods of praying for them, and then I kind of get frustrated because I don't see anything happening. And I stop praying, and then I'm like, oh, I've got to get back to praying for them again, you know, daily. And Notice something. How long did Rachel wait? She'd been praying to have kids a long time. She'd been hoping for that a long time. The Lord did it, but the Lord did it in his timing. And it's the same thing for you, friends. If you're praying for that loved one, if you're praying for your family, don't grow weary in well-doing. Because in due time, you will reap if you don't lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word can encourage us, can guide us. God, let it strengthen us this morning. Let us see the examples set before us in Scripture, Lord, and learn about it, Lord. Let us be encouraged to keep trying, God, not to lose heart. God, I ask that you would reach into the hearts of those loved ones, our family members. God, bring about a great awakening, Lord, in this this land. Bring about a great revival, God. That as things get worse and worse culturally, as things get worse and worse with our economy, that, God, you would use that, Lord. You would use those bad times, Lord, to be able to grab the hearts of men, to cause great awakening, great revival to come to our land. Lord, wake us up. Let us once again, Lord, look at your word the way we should. Give it the time we should, Lord. Let us be prepared that when that time comes, Lord, we're well able to make disciples. I thank you for it, God. I thank you for your people. I ask you to be with us as we go our ways today, Lord. Watch over us. Let us be true and faithful witnesses to you and for you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.